This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Greetings, everyone, all across the world and five continents. Welcome to the China History Podcast. Laszlo Montgomery here once again, for lack of a better and more entertaining host. We're covering the time period of 960 to 1127 today, 167 years in all. This was the period of the Northern Song Dynasty. Like the Zhou, Han, and Jin dynasties, the Song too is divided into an earlier and a latter period. The period we will discuss today was known as the Northern Song, and the period we'll look at next time will be the Southern Song, which picks up in 1127 after the Northern Song are kicked out of their capital in the north. The Southern Song lasts till 1279 when they and anyone else who got in their way are overwhelmed by the forces of Kublai Khan and the Mongols. Today's episode about the Northern Song can't be told without talking about the three other big political entities in China. China, as we know it today, was split up into four main centers of power. You, of course, still had the Khitan Liao dynasty up in Manchuria in the northeast. Then you had the breakaway Jurchen Jin dynasty in the north and the western Xia dynasty to the west, which was led by the Tangut people. It made for a very interesting dynamic, and we'll look at these non-Han dynasties in this episode. Now, in addition to these three main non-Han dynasties, the Liao, Jin, and Western Xia, you still had a lot of empires, kingdoms, and whatnot developing on the periphery of China in Southeast and Central Asia. You still had the Tibetans to the West, but there was relative peace with them, and by the end of the Five Dynasties period, they were not even close to being the menace they once were. In the South, in Vietnam, a whole new kingdom was growing. The Li Dynasty is prospering in what was known as Dai Viet, or Great Viet. They were a vassal state of the Song, but the Vietnamese, not being a nation of people amenable to subjugation, they caused the Song Dynasty no small amount of grief. And the Song troops tried to defeat the Dai Viet without success and suffered a major defeat in 1075 near modern-day Nanning in Guangxi province. In the southwest, you had the Kingdom of Dali, or Dali Guo, the successor state to the Kingdom of Nanzhao, which we discussed in the last podcast. They were down in Yunnan and Burma with all those mountains and valleys. and It was a very hard land to penetrate and conquer because of the physical terrain. But as we'll see, when the Mongols make their big move on the stage of world history, the kingdom of Dali, too, also fell to these uh, invincible conquerors. So when you look at a map of modern China today, the part that was controlled by the northern Song, it had huge chunks of land all around it that were controlled by all these non-Han peoples in the northeast, and the north, northwest, and, you know, the entire west. Despite being surrounded by all these competing Kitan, Tangut, and Jurchen kingdoms, this is still another great time for China. Art, commerce, education, Confucianism, technology, and, well, you know, just society in general, all saw great advances. 
During the Song Dynasty, we see paper money for the first time, as well as the world's first permanent standing navy. Uh, Gunpowder is invented. It begins to totally change the way battles are fought. The Song is is one of the most creative periods in China and experienced a uh, sort of a renaissance similar to what we would see beginning with Dante, Petrarch, and Boccaccio in 14th century Italy. You had, for the first time, a proliferation of printed books. And the impact that printed books had on spreading knowledge and promoting education can't be overstated enough. All the old ways were questioned and challenged, and you know, reform was in the air. The capital of the northern Song was located right on the banks of the Yellow River in the city of Kaifeng in present-day Henan. The new Song capital was slightly smaller than uh, Chang'an, but still at least three times the size of the city of ancient Rome. Its strategic location, right where the Grand Canal hits the Yellow River, turned the city into, well, not only the imperial capital, but an economic powerhouse as well. Kaifeng, before long, had over a million inhabitants. The population of China was really starting to take off right about now. The population almost doubles during the Song from 50 to 100 million. This can be credited to higher yielding grains and the increased production of rice, sustained food surpluses, and you know, just an all-around vibrancy of the economy. By this time, or starting in the Five Dynasties period, rice becomes the big daddy in China, replacing wheat and millet as the most abundant source of grain. We don't see any big rebellions or massive natural disasters to keep culling the population like in centuries past. Urbanization really took off between the 9th and 11th centuries. You know, back in the day, you, you had the city, and then there was a wall around the city, and the wall provided the necessary protection when the going got rough or you know, when invaders tried to do battle. Now, with the rise of commerce that came about due to the booming economy that you know, was fueled by all kinds of innovations, you, you had towns outside the city where all these merchants had their operations. When the traders and craftsmen were, were inside the city walls, well, you know, they were subject to more control. Now that they were outside the walls, it was, it was harder to control them, and they sort of evolved on their own into the powerful merchant class that they became. And as these nascent industrial centers started to grow, uh, demand for labor also grew, and men flocked to these cities to seek work. And so these cities grew far beyond the city walls. And now for the first time, there was a great demand for you know, things like shop assistants and salesmen and entertainers and you know all kinds of workers to run the explosion of tea houses hotels you know whatnot and as these cities grew so you know it would give rise to you know like the seamy underside of urbanization you had thieves pickpockets gambling and prostitution whatnot and then as this economy transformed the local society and people grew rich you suddenly had this new demand for things like house servants now in china you had the development of greater specialization of manufacturing and industry which was aided by a very efficient and low-cost transport network utilizing the grand canal the yangtze and the myriad of lakes and tributaries north and south of this great river, the Yangtze, which of course is the river that the Chinese always call the Changjiang. You also had the development of financial and brokerage services to finance all the trade, both foreign and domestic. As a result of all this commerce, you, you had a multitude of towns that sprang up along the transport routes. You actually see for the first time that maritime trade exceeded the volume of traditional overland trade. Chinese vessels sailed the high seas, trading in Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and the south of India. As in Europe, and, you know, many of these voyages were financed by investors who would take a cut of the profits, and of course, 
ship went down, they didn't get anything. From the eyewitness accounts of the first China traders from Arab and European locations came descriptions of these great ports found along the coasts of Zhejiang and Fujian, Guangdong, that far exceeded anything found where they had come from. All the great innovations that came out of the Song Age held true for building ships as well. Song Dynasty junks with, with six masts, twelve sails, four decks that could hold a thousand men were, were commonplace. Because of all the goings-on in the north, you had another migration of Han Chinese from the north to the south. In fact, 60% of the Chinese now lived below the Yangtze. It was no doubt considered safer down in south, far away from all these non-Han steppe peoples who had been the scourge of China going all the way back to the beginning of Han Chinese history. So let's look at the founding of the Northern Song. This, of course, grew out of the tumult of the Five Dynasties period that we covered in the last podcast episode. The fifth and final dynasty during this period of disunity was the later Zhou Dynasty. They could have been the ones to reunify China. The later Zhou had two good emperors before they fell. The founder, Guo Wei, founded the dynasty in 951 and becomes Emperor Taizu. Three years into his reign, just as he's starting to pass all kinds of good and necessary reforms, he dies and is succeeded by his even abler son, who we know as Emperor Shizong. These were Han rulers who had a Han education. If not for the father, lasting only three years, and the son, a total of five, who knows what great things could have happened. Shizong had started to win back some of the lands lost in the south. His defeat of the southern Tang dynasty and the later Shu, two of the ten kingdoms of the south, was cut short by his death in 959. And our hero of this episode, the founder of the Song, got his start as a most trusted general in the later Zhou army. And when the time felt right, he pushed the seven-year-old boy emperor aside and did away with the later Zhou dynasty and then sets himself up as emperor. And this Song founder was, of course, Zhao Kuangyin, who, like the founder of the later Zhou that he had just vanquished, becomes the Song Emperor Taizu. In some ways, what the Sui dynasty was for the Tang, the later Zhou was for the Song. They didn't quite succeed with what they were trying to do, but the later Zhou sure made it easier for the Song to get their act together real quickly once Zhao Kuangyin uh, took power in 960. The Taizu Emperor continued the unfinished job of reuniting the South. One reason the Song was able to become what it was was thanks in part to having two good founding emperors in Taizu and Taizong. It took only two decades to reunite the South. The Chu fell first in 963. The Chu state was in the middle reaches of the Yangtze River. In Sichuan, the later Shu fell in 965, followed by the southern Han in Guangdong in 971. 975, the heartland of the south in Anhui, Jiangxi, and Hunan fell in 975. This was the Jiangnan kingdom. In 978, the Wu Yue, who we looked briefly at last time, they fell to the forces of the northern Song. These were the lands in present-day Jiangsu and Zhejiang. The last one to fall in 979 was the northern Han in Shanxi. And with that, the part of China not controlled by the Tanguts, Jurchens, and Kitan Liao was again unified. This was a territory about seven times the size of modern-day France. In order to gain control of their newly unified lands, the Song had to make peace with the Kitan king, or, or Kagan. In 979, Song Taizong, after all the southern kingdoms were vanquished, tried to move on the Liao Kitan in the north and defeat them. 
it turned out to be a bad move. He had been strongly advised not to do this, but Song Taizong must have been feeling invincible after unifying the rest of China. It's said that the Emperor Song Taizong suffered the ignominy of fleeing the losing battle against the Khitan in a common cart. This Khitan emperor at the time, he dies two years later in a hunting accident, and once he's gone, you had his 11-year-old son on the Liao throne. Song Taizong, once again, sensing a weakness, makes his move against his northeast Nanhan neighbor, and again, he's defeated. Then there's a 10-year lull in the fighting between the Khitan and the Song, uh, Taizong dies in 997, and he's followed by a loser, the Zhenzong Emperor. And now it's time for the Liao to go on the offensive. In 1004, on the banks of the Yellow River, right at the Song capital of Kaifeng, the Song and Kitan forces meet at a town called Shanyuan. You have this very, very big showdown, and the Song are there with a huge army, and they're not going to be a pushover. You have this period now where you know you have these Han intermediaries are running back and forth between the two camps on opposite sides of the river, trying to negotiate a peace and trying to prevent any battle, which would surely lead to massive loss of life on both sides. And then a treaty is signed in 1005, and as a result of the Treaty of Shanyuan, both sides played the game of paying tribute to each other, and of course each side played this down and made it sound like the other side was the inferior of the two, paying tribute to them, and he had face involved here, and no one wanted to look like they were the weaker power. In their peace with the Kitan, the Song agreed the Kitan Kagan was an equal, and the Liao were also given 200,000 lengths of silk and 2.8 million grams or 100,000 ounces of silver, plus gifts of great value that were presented on special occasions. And in return for all this and a lot more, the Liao recognized Song suzerainty over their southern domains. And this treaty keeps peace for a century between the Kitan Liao and the Song. The Liao emperor, according to the terms of the treaty, was primus inter pares, or first among equals. And you can imagine how humiliating this was to the Chinese, but they took it in stride. The Jurchens and Tanguts, though, sensing a softness in the Song Dynasty demanded increases to their already considerable tribute payments. The Liao Kitan had a they had a dual government system. They had one government based in the center of their lands in eastern Mongolia. This government ruled the Kitan subjects using all the laws, customs, and nomadic sensibilities of their culture and history. To rule the southern part of their empire in what is today northern China, they had another parallel government, this one based in what is present-day Beijing. This government was completely Sinified and did everything according to all the established Han Chinese ways. And it was run like a good old Chinese bureaucracy. I mean, all the Kitans cared about was how to continue to maximize the taxes and tribute from these Chinese subjects. The Song were not just paying tribute to the Liao. As I said, they were also paying a very hefty tribute to the Tanguts as well. Paying these guys off was a huge strain on the treasury. But you know, the truth is, all the silver that went from China to these nomadic steppe peoples ended up coming back to China because there really wasn't the kind of economy amongst the Tanguts, Jurchen, and Liao that offered up all the various kinds of things that people might like to buy. So China, being China and all, all the money poured back into the China economy in the form of 
you know, purchases of Chinese manufactured goods. Foreign and domestic trade was having a huge impact on the growth of the economy and, you know, the Chinese nation as a whole. The Tan goods, well, they had their own empire going on too. This was called the Western Xia. They got this name because one of their ancestors did well under the Tang dynasty and was given a prefecture called Xia, and he became the Duke of Xia. He was also given the imperial Tang surname of Li. During the course of the end of the Tang and throughout the Five Dynasties period, this Western Xia grew larger and larger, and it was a you know it was a very Buddhist empire, and Buddhism was sort of the state religion amongst the Tanguts. The Tangut Xia Empire covered you know, all of Gansu province up to Ningxia and into northern Shanxi, 745 miles from east to west. In 1038, the western Xia emperor, he sends a delegation to the Song, basically, you know, seeking official recognition of their new dynasty. And the Song, they totally snubbed this delegation and refused to recognize the Western Xia is equals. And this is the Song Emperor Ren Zong by now, who was the grandson of Taizong. The Western Xia Emperor, he didn't like this, and he sort of does the same thing with a similar delegation from Kaifeng that came to the Tangut court. So you had this you know, little tit-for-tat animosity between these two neighbors going on. This results in five years of war between the two kingdoms, between uh, 1039 in 1044. You know, the Kitans, they acted as go-betweens in this mess, but they used their position as intermediaries to just meddle and do more harm than good. So by 1045, the crisis with the Western Xia is resolved, and the usual uneasy peace that was bolstered by tribute and treaties that both sides claimed as proof of their own respective superiority over the other. Anyway, we'll come back to these northern and western neighbors later when the Northern Song falls in uh, 1127. In the meantime, things are booming in the Song dynasty. The imperial civil service exams were expanded and improved upon. You had three levels of competitions. The lowest was at the prefecture level. Then you had exams in Kaifeng, the capital, that were supervised by the imperial secretariat. And then the final competition was held in the palace itself in the presence of no less a personage than the emperor himself. In addition to the exams themselves, reforms were enacted that allowed others to you know, refer potential candidates and make recommendations, but whoever personally recommended a candidate would suffer the consequences if their candidate turned out bad. A lot of mechanisms were put in place that encouraged and rewarded competency in civil bureaucrats, and the system worked. So good and so effective and powerful were these bureaucrats or mandarins as we have also come to know them, that they effectively controlled everything in the empire. In the Song Dynasty, you didn't see all the rogues gallery of self-serving villains from dynasties past who used their influence in the palace to control affairs of state. You didn't see eunuchs and evil empress dowagers competing families and you know, royal favorites mucking about like during the Tang and other earlier times. In fact, even the emperors played second fiddle to the ministers who administered all aspects of the government, both in Kaifeng and throughout the northern Song territories. The strength of the Song was in their civil government and in all the political and social reforms that they enacted, particularly in the 11th century. Having already proven their military ineffectiveness against the Liao and the western Xia, 
revamping the military was highest on the list of necessary reforms. Since the military was tied to all other aspects of the kingdom, by starting with the military, reforms would also bleed out into the economy and into the social and political world as well. The two great Song Dynasty reformers were Fan Chong Yen, 989-1052, and Wang Anshir, 1021-1086. Fan had been instrumental in negotiating the peace with the Western Xia. By 1044, he had this all taken care of. It was Fan who was instrumental in pushing all the civil service reforms, as well as reforms to agriculture and, and commerce. These reforms of Fan Zhongyan really only built on institutions already in existence. He was effective in taking a good thing and making it much better. However, it was the new reforms of Wang Anshi that truly transformed the established order of things. Wang Anshi's reforms idealistically said if you improve the lives of those at the bottom of society, namely the peasants, then... Once they had a better lot in life, they would be more effective in keeping the Tangut and Western Xia out of Song, China. And now, it wasn't really just the peasants who were exploited and taken advantage of. Now you had a whole class of, you know, poor tradesmen, that is, craftsmen and workers who were exploited by the larger business entities and rich merchants thriving in this new, vibrant economy. The nature of these reforms was, of course, naturally antagonistic to the established powers, namely the large landholders and rich merchants. It was always those who had the most to lose who resisted the changes the most. This is as true today in our world as it was in Song Dynasty China. What happened as a result of these reforms of 1068-1085 was you had a very deep division between conservative and reformers, the two political parties or, or, or factions of the time. Wang Anshu's reforms also touched the civil service exams and how bureaucrats were recruited and paid. But in the realm of the Chinese military, Wang Anshu really made a difference. At this time, the defense of Song China was mostly jobbed out to mercenaries. This actually ended up being more costly than fielding your own troops, and of course these mercenaries were hardly loyal to anything except their next payment. So we had the establishment of peasant militias who were organized into groups of 10 families each. And this was, of course, the Baojia system, which gave the peasants their own community-based law enforcement system. No longer were they endlessly harassed by outside military units. Wang Anshu's reforms called everything into question as far as the long-established ways of doing things. It went after all the privileges and positions of the empire that were handed down from one generation to another. The reforms also called for improvements to public welfare. This included the establishment of orphanages, public cemeteries, reserve granaries. How to do this had been learned from the Buddhist institutions who back then and still today are famous for their charitable works. The conservative voice of this time was the eminent historian Sima Guang. He came from a very privileged background, and I couldn't find anything that linked Sima Guang to Sima Qian. I guess it just must have been a coincidence that two of China's greatest historians would share the same surname. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Once the Shenzong emperor dies, the reforms are all repealed and everything goes back to the way it was. The spirit of the times, with all the innovations and practically everything, it seems, really hit the world of military affairs and how war was waged. First of all, even the way soldiers were recruited changed. In the past, the way peasants were conscripted sort of took all the bad with the good, which led to desertions and, you know, unremarkable soldiers. Now the army was more selective, and soldiers had to meet certain minimum criteria before they were accepted into the army. All this innovation and new technologies gave rise to new weapons and ways to carry out siege warfare. There were all kinds of effective weapons invented, such as repeating crossbows, tank prototypes, and of course the most important of all, gunpowder, that really changed the way wars were fought. And this had a great impact on the twisting road of history and how things panned out for those who were able to make the most out of these new technologies fastest. I'm not sure if you can recall, but way, way, way back in one of the earliest podcasts on China's Four Great Inventions, or Sida Faming, we discussed a treatise called the Wu Jing Zong Yao, or Collection of the Most Important Military Techniques. This came out in 1044, and from this great work, we see how the innovations during the Song changed things forever and how battles were won or lost. The Wu Jing Song Yao clearly mentions gunpowder for the first time in the three critical ingredients, coal, saltpeter, and sulfur. In the West, it wasn't until the time of the great 13th century philosopher and all-around universal man, Roger Bacon, that gunpowder is even mentioned in the West in 1267. Gunpowder led to a whole number of military applications. From gunpowder sprang rockets, flamethrowers, exploding bombs, smoke bombs, and landmines. The Chinese even developed a kind of paraffin flamethrower that threw out a continuous jet flame. New kinds of catapults were invented that had all kinds of applications for launching projectiles, both the incendiary and non-incendiary type. And we'll see later, these terribly destructive weapons really came of age during the time of the Mongol Yuan Dynasty, which follows the Song. The Song Dynasty were the first great beneficiaries of gunpowder. After so many centuries of these Taoist alchemists mucking about with all their mixtures and concoctions, they finally hit upon this magical combination. So it's probably these alchemists who we have to thank for the invention of gunpowder. Another something special about the Song period as opposed to, well, you know, China since Yu the Great tamed the floods back in 2205 BC was that for the first time, the Chinese people are really on the move. It's China's first mobile society. Now, of course, we know there were periods of mass migration from north to south and that people got around to a certain extent, but it's in the Song period where the, the spirit and the ability to just get up and go really came into being. With the Song reforms to the civil service, no one could serve in their hometown and these you know, government administrators moved around a lot. Peasants were moving to the cities and emerging large towns were springing up everywhere. Because of all the river commerce and maritime trade, entire subcultures emerged of Chinese boatmen and stevedores, sailors, and you know others who made their living off this whole new age of mobility. As for the peasants, they too took advantage of the ease in getting around, and, and when they hit a rough patch or you know some natural disaster made staying in the same place counterproductive, they moved around and looked for greener pastures elsewhere. 
And because people were no longer just staying put, it became necessary to form associations and societies. You know, when those leaving the comforts and predictability of their home turf went elsewhere, you know, by belonging to some formal association, you know, they might find a safe haven far from home. These proto-associations were formed based on where you came from, you know, whether from a province, town, or village, and you also had associations of merchants or professions. This whole period of the five dynasties and the Song saw the greatest leaps forward in the science of rice cultivation. New planting methods, new tilling and irrigating tools all contributed to an explosion in productivity and allowed for ample rice for all. And going back to the earliest times when man first settled down in one place and domesticated animals and planted grain, whenever you had these great surpluses, whenever you had this comfortable cushion of food reserves, everything prospered on the back of that. And because a rice paddy's yield per acre is greater than anything else farmed in China, it released a lot of farm labor from the duties of agriculture. And early in the 11th century, you had new rice seeds from the kingdom of Champa, south of the Dai Viet kingdom, that ripened early and allowed for two plantings per season. There was an old saying during the Song dynasty that sort of defined the times as far as the state of Chinese agriculture went. It went like this, Su Chang Shu Tian Xia Zu, or in English, when the harvests of Suzhou and Changzhou are ripe, the world is satisfied. So this whole revolution in agriculture formed the foundation from which all these other great things started to happen. One of the first industries to really get big were the ones you know, China had always been great at, producing silk, growing tea, uh, making lacquerware. You know, now you had so many excess farmers who had nothing to do anymore in the countryside, so they came to the cities to seek work. Song Chinese businessmen were, you know, no less brilliant back then than their descendants are today, and they were quick to recognize how to exploit this, you know, newly expanded labor supply. Soon you had, you know, regions that developed a reputation for specialty in, you know, certain industries. For example, Hebei was the place for iron, you know, the region around Taihu was famous for, you know, its rice, Fujian, famous for sugar, and the best paper came from Zhejiang and Sichuan. The best books, they could be had in Chengdu and Hangzhou. Everyone benefited from this larger-than-life network of waterways that linked practically all of central and eastern China together. 50,000 kilometers in all. It was the greatest facilitator of trade the world had ever seen before. The north, south, east, and west was all linked by the Yellow River and the Yangtze and all the smaller rivers and countless lakes and tributaries that wandered off from the mainstream. During the Song Dynasty, China really clicked and shifted into a new gear. Chinese metallurgy also experienced a sort of revolution. Around this time, maybe a little earlier, coal replaced charcoal as the energy supply of choice. This sure saved a lot of trees from destruction, and it was a discovery that couldn't come soon enough. Mind you, in England, organic fuel was still being used all the way up to the uh, 17th century before coal came into its own. And from this new, efficient heat supply came you know, more sophisticated hydraulic and mechanical machinery to make all these metal objects. And 
Gunpowder was used to blast mines to get at the ores more quickly. In 1078, 118 years after the establishment of the Northern Song, 114,000 tons of cast iron was produced within the empire. Now, you compare this with England in 1788 during the Industrial Revolution, where 68,000 tons were produced. So mining really took off in China right about now. Iron, copper, lead, and tin. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of the Song Dynasty, the one icon I always flash on is the Song Dynasty vase. The whole industry of ceramics, which we all know from time immemorial, was one of China's greatest strengths, um, really takes off during the Song. From the imperial kilns in Kaifeng and also Dingxian and Hangzhou and, of course, the internationally famous kilns in the great city of Jingdezhen in Jiangxi province came some of the greatest ceramic treasures found in museums and private collections around the world. In 1024, in Sichuan, you had the first appearance of Fei Qian, or flying money. These were you know, essentially certificates of deposit given to merchants by government authorities. Although not technically paper money, this was the precursor, so to speak. Paper money followed and became quite common throughout the Song, and of course it was also legal tender in the non-Han kingdoms adjacent to China. Some other financial instruments that grew out of the booming Song China economy were things like the promissory note, checks, and you know, bills of exchange. The world of trade and commerce had simply outgrown the you know, traditional ways that used strings of copper cash you know, that had always been the coin of the realm. You know, I could really go on and on about all the great things that came out of the Song. I barely even scratch the surface on the great inventions of printing and gunpowder and others. There's a lot more that can be said about all the changes happening and how they impacted China and how they impacted China's neighbors and, you know, others who came into contact with these new things. I suppose one could speak endlessly about Song Dynasty art and literature, which was, you know, no less great than what the Tang produced. Great things were also happening in the sciences and in philosophy. The Song Dynasty saw the return of the Confucian tradition and the rejection of Buddhism. By the time of the Northern Song, it had been a good 2,000 years or more since the time of the Zhou Dynasty, so you can imagine there were already a treasure trove of ancient relics buried in the ground all over China. And during the Song Dynasty, the science of archaeology sort of comes into its own. And the scholars of the Song Dynasty re-examined China's histories and made great contributions to recording and interpreting what was already, you know, quite a long history. From cosmology to astronomy, Chinese scientists and thinkers also made great advances. Now, the Northern Song fell in 1127. It didn't fall, as we'll see shortly, so much as it was chased out of Kaifeng and sent packing to the south. If you compare 11th century China to 11th century Europe, there's quite a striking comparison. No matter how you measured the sophistication, when it came to the measurable differences, you know, in volumes of trade, uh, technologies, political organization, the advances in the sciences, the arts and literature, China was undisputedly the, the more advanced of the two civilizations. And you could throw the Islamic civilizations there too, for, you know, these lands that had embraced the Quran were far more advanced uh, than, you know, those in the West. 
So we're sort of uh, running a little longer than I'd like to, so let's hit the fast-forward button and finish off the Northern Song. You'd think with all the things I've said about how great they were that, you know, this show would go on forever. But, alas, not. Remember, all along, the Song had these dangerous neighbors to the north and to the west. One of them was about to get really big and nasty, and these were the Jurchens to the north. Now, who were these guys, the Jurchens? Would it help if I called them the Manchus? Yes, the Jurchens were the Manchus. In 1115, they established their own dynasty called the Jin, not the Jin, like the Western and Eastern Jin. That was a different Jin, fourth tone, different character. This Jurchen Jin dynasty was Jin, first tone, which means gold. And for another little-known factoid, this is also the character used for the great Korean surname Kim. Now, the Jurchens were actually vassals of the Kitan Liao to the east of them. Their first emperor in 1115 was Jin Taizu. He was another one of those brilliant warrior kings that the steppes of Asia tended to produce from time to time. In 1114, he turned on the Jurchen big brother to the east, the Liao, and Jin Taizu felt that the Liao had become weak and decadent, and they were ripe for the taking. He formed an alliance in 1123 with the northern Song. This alliance gave the Song back their 16 Yenyun states, or 16 prefectures, as they were also called. And in return, the Song gave the Jurchens 300,000 bolts of silk and 200,000 tails of silver. Their military alliance called for them to combine to overthrow the Liao, the Jurchens would attack from the west and the northern Song from the south. So by 1125, under the second Jurchen Emperor Taizong, the Liao were done away with. No more Liao dynasty, now it's all Manchu territory. Well, the end is coming for the Song. The last two emperors of the northern Song dynasty were a father and son team. The father Huizong, the son Qinzong. They had the... Uh, misfortune of reigning at a time when the powerful Jurchen Jin dynasty decided to spread their wings and expand to the south into the northern Song lands. The Song Emperor Huizong, he had quite a story. He was Emperor Numero Ocho. I know I've been gushing about how great the Song was and all, but truthfully, by the time of Huizong in 1100, the Song is already descending. It had become corrupt, as I guess would be expected after such an expansion and transformation of the economy. The Emperor Huizong, he's been universally called a weak-minded emperor. He had one redeeming quality that was quite important to preserving uh, China's cultural heritage. This was his devotion to painting and calligraphy and, you know, preserving and studying and cataloging as many great works from the past as possible. He was great when it came to preserving China's cultural heritage, but otherwise he was a pretty unconvincing emperor. In 1125, the new Jin dynasty, who had already taken the Liao down, decided to move on Kaifeng. Emperor Huizong, he saw the writing on the wall and said, you know, I'm out of here. He abdicates in favor of his 25-year-old son, who becomes the Qinzong emperor. Then, then Huizong he flees, uh, leaving his son to face the wrath of the Jurchens. In addition to this, Qinzong was facing a revolt by many officials against these utterly corrupt ministers, such as Tsai Jing and Tong Guan. Li Gang, one of the decent ministers, is put in charge, and he organizes things to the extent that the invading Jin forces are repelled. 
Li Gang puts together a strong defense and completely has the Jurchens under control. However, the Qingzong Emperor, he preferred to surrender despite his current strong advantage. He therefore dismisses Li Gang and decides to throw himself at the mercy of the Jurchen army. And this turned out to be a big mistake because they didn't show this last Song Emperor any mercy. But Li Gang was popular and the people rose to his defense and, you know, there rose up a huge protest that made Qin Zong reinstate Li Gang before he, you know, had actually carried out his surrender. And then hearing this, that, you know, Li Gang was back and they're going to rally the Jin forces, well, they just head back north. Once the coast is clear, the retired emperor, Hui Zong, he comes back to Kaifeng. Then, in August 1126, the Jin, they strike again. This time, they take advantage of this muddle-headed emperor, and they use a kind of a ruse to break into the city. And so, January 9th, 1127, Qin Zong then surrenders to the Jin and kneels before them. The Jin, they knew there was no chance in this lifetime or any other to control central China, so they didn't have any uh, delusions of grandeur. They basically took the two father and son emperors back to their capital, along with 3,000 other imperial family members. This wholesale capture of the two emperors and the entire Song court is known in Chinese history as the Jinkang Incident, or Jinkang Shibian. From that point on until they died, these two emperors were on the receiving end of just about every possible kind of humiliation that you could heap upon a captured sovereign. Emperor Huizong, at his peak, was the most powerful ruler on earth, but yet he died a tortured and broken man who faced endless abuse and insult from his Jurchen captors in the frozen northeast of Manchuria. And for his last years in, you know, present-day Beijing, as for the 3,000 or so members of the Song court, all these ministers, generals, and you know, members of the imperial family, their fate wasn't much better than their emperor. The Jin Emperor Taizong had all these members of the Song court taken back to the Jin capital near present-day Harbin in Heilongjiang. This trek from Kaifeng to Harbin was like a Bataan death march with a great number of the people dying from one sickness or another brought upon by the abuse heaped upon them by their jurchen tormentors. Then those that did manage to arrive alive in the Jin capital had to go through this terribly humiliating jurchen ritual at the temple in the capital. This ritual called for everyone to strip naked before their captors at this temple and wear these ritual sheepskins, you know, naked from the waist up. The 26-year-old Empress Zhu, rather than face this humiliation, drowned herself at the first opportunity. Everyone else was either sold into slavery or sold to brothels, where it was said anyone could have a Chinese royal from the House of Song for less than 10 ounces of gold. The Jurchens didn't capture everyone. Some royals escaped to the south and regrouped in a town called Lin'an, which today is called Hangzhou. And it's there that we have the Song Dynasty Part 2, also known as the Southern Song. And it's next week that we'll look at the Southern Song and maybe discuss a little more about the Song Dynasty and its legacy. And so, everyone, who I ran way over this week, sorry about that. I was thinking about making this Northern Song Dynasty a two-part podcast, but alas, I crammed it all into one single download. 
I'm off to Miami this week um, for a short uh, Chu Chai. And then the following week, I'm off to one of my favorite countries, Deutschland. Six days and nights in Goethe's hometown of Frankfurt am Main. Can't wait to tuck into a nice Schlachplatte at Adolf Wagner's. And so, once again, for my perch here on the easternmost edge of L.A. County in the city where we have an unusually high number of PhDs per capita, I'm Laszlo Montgomery, wishing you the very best and thanking you from the bottom of my heart for listening, if you made it this far, that is. Join me next week, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. Goodbye, all.